0: Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace podcast. Each week, we explore a biblical passage or topic, offering insight and application and seeking to point us to hope and direction for our lives. We also have some interactive questions for each podcast for individual reflection or for small groups. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. This week, we are going to look at a Story found in three different gospel accounts um, in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and in John 12. It is the story of Mary of Bethany ministering to Jesus with anointing oil. The context finds us late in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. In fact, he's making his way toward the city of Jerusalem for what will be his final week on earth, ending with his crucifixion. Our setting is in the home of Simon the leper with Martha, Mary, and their brother Lazarus attending, as well as Jesus and his 12 disciples, and most likely some other people are there as well. Now notice they're in the house of Simon, Simon the leper. Leprosy was a highly contagious disease, or is a highly contagious disease, and it can be devastating. And in that time, it truly was socially and economically and physically devastating. And Judaism, in fact, under the ceremonial law, it made you unclean, one that needed to be avoided. You would not be going to the temple, or worshiping there. You would not be having uh, social contacts. You would have to actually social distance. Think, Talk about social distancing. Imagine you had to go into Walmart with a full hazmat suit on and a sign saying leper. And everyone would stay, not uh, not six feet, but much more than that, away from you. <laughs> It was a disease that was hard to heal from, and definitely a social bummer. You're then an outcast, and even if you're a healed leper, that was not going to be easy. But here we see the influence of Jesus Christ because he's in the house of Simon the leper. We assume he's a healed leper, and uh, he's got many people there. The disciples are there with him, and we know this is not a place that they would normally be found in, as good Jews and good Jewish boys as they were really these disciples were all in between the age of 20 and 30 most likely. Um this is places that uh they would not normally be found in and yet here they're with the influence of Jesus Christ who doesn't go by the social norms and standards of the day. And there are others there too, others that also are friends of the Lord and so forth. So here's this this meal. And after the meal we read in John chapter 12 and verse 3 that then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrant fragrance of the oil. So we see Mary kind of probably causing a silence to fall over the room, and this oil was very costly. In fact, uh, they estimate it could be worth about a year's income I remember in that day, they didn't have a lot of money or coinage. So there was other forms of carrying wealth and obviously uh, commodities, things of value. So this would be maybe kind of like her part of her investment, her banking, her savings. And she takes this. And the amount that she's using also, we know from the other accounts, was rather lavish, well beyond normal, excessive. And it was heartfelt. She's even wiping the oil with her hair. Now, in Matthew's account, we would read how when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? Now, I use Matthew's account because it says the disciples saw it, and they, plural, were indignant. In John's account, it says it was Judas, and he did this because he was the one who kept the purse. But in the other accounts, it's not just Judas, it's the disciples. So clearly, the disciples were not on the same page as Mary they identified what they were seeing and what was happening before them as a waste now think about that the oil which is of great value was being ministered in a very loving way to jesus their lord the one whom is their master and whom they have been following for three years and it is implied, it is applied by a friend of jesus mary and it's an intense moment, and she is ministering to him. And you call that a waste? Well, secondly, we could note that this, they, well, the second thing that they objected to is that they said this would have been far better served if given away to help the poor. This value of this oil, look what we could have done with it. They kind of used what we could say is the poor card, the poverty card, which can be used against almost any expense, really. And it was also Passover week that was just about to start, which in Jewish custom was a time of even increased almsgiving, maybe comparable like to our Christmas season, where charity giving is a lot higher that time of year. But the fact is, as the oil wasn't theirs. It was Mary's. So they really just are observing and they have opinions. They have critical opinions. Mark chapter 14, verse 5, in his account of the story says, they criticized her sharply they did not keep their judgments in they swelled up in anger indignation and then it came out and they began to scold her a number of the modern translations say they scolded her so a a verbal barrage of criticism they're evaluating her actions and and making negative comments from what they from their superior viewpoint and from their viewpoint, their in light of their privileged position as Jewish men, close disciples of Jesus, kind of in the inner circle, and their males, they were justified in their own minds then as to how correct they were and how with ease they can make these assessments of Mary. Well, Jesus now intervenes on Mary's behalf, telling his followers to leave her alone. He says in Mark chapter 4 and verse 6, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. She is showing devotion and worship, and it's her oil. And she is choosing to use it on me. Just how do you fit into this? The hint, you don't. Well, he also then says, after that, For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good, but me, you do not have always, and that's the hint. I will not be here. I am leaving. I will be crucified. I will be. I will die very soon. You see, he says the poor you have always is a start part of their law, referring to Deuteronomy 15:11, where, after stating that there will always be poverty. It is followed with the command to go and be generous and to help the poor and to do good to them. It's a call to action, not a dismissive statement. And now here Jesus, though, says, but I am here now, I will not be here always, hint. And that's why he said that what she is doing, she is doing to prepare my body for burial. This is a preparation for burial. You see, indeed, by the end of the week, Jesus will be crucified on Friday afternoon. And Mary, realizing this will be the last time she sees him before that event, is doing what she could ahead of time, anointing him with oils used in the burial process. The disciples maybe kind of look at themselves, huh? Burial? What burial? In fact, Jesus says whenever this gospel is preached, referring to his upcoming death, on the cross, what she did will be memorialized. What she has done also will be told as a memorial to her. And that is what we just did. We read about this in the scriptures. It's a memorial to her devotion, her worship, her faith. So the context here then again is this Jesus is God. He's about to go into the final week where he will suffer and die and be crucified. Mary, who understands this, pours upon his feet, preparing his body for burial. She is worshiping her Lord, her Messiah, her Savior. Pour it on, Mary. In fact, it could not ever could possibly even be enough oil for how worthy he is in the moment. And she is very appropriate for her then to be preparing his body for burial. It's almost amusing that when we hear this story, we uh, typically will tend to identify with Mary. Yeah, that's me. But I'm afraid that really we probably are most likely like the disciples. Uh, we share some zeal, some positive attitude toward Jesus. We're certainly not contrary or negative toward him in any way. But we also share some healthy criticisms of those that we church with or minister with. There's a lots of opinions here that we might have about how they, what they should be doing with their life, or what they should be doing with their time, and so forth. Lots of opinions about others and how they're, um, you know, uh, should be doing this or that. And our opinions are embedded in a, are a bank of self-righteousness, so that we can let them flow out easily. We have words of criticism, and it all stems from a spiritual reality of being positive or for Jesus, but not so much really with him. We've missed something along the way. We don't really get him at times, not like Mary did. We have some preconceived notions that we stick to. So the question is, how did Mary know? How did Mary know he was going to die and that she could anoint his body for burial? How did the disciples not know this? Well, it was no big secret. It's not some um, mystical insight here. As we know from passages in Scripture, Mark, we'll just look at these from Mark chapter 8, verse 31 through 33. Jesus, earlier with his disciples, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. He spoke this word openly then peter took him aside privately and began to rebuke him no 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 was the idea no we won't let this happen but when he had turned around and looked at his disciples he rebuked peter jesus did saying get behind me satan for you are not mindful of the things of god with the things of men mark nine thirty-one through 32 for he taught his disciples and said to them the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise the third day; but they did not understand this scene, and were afraid to ask him Mark chapter ten verse thirty two through thirty four and now uh, they were on the road again, a road rather going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed, and as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed, to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Notice how plainly Jesus had said these things. And then matthew 26 verses 1 and 2 it came to pass when jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples you know that after two days is the passover the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified what he means is the passover week this was said on um uh, on on friday the beth the simon the leopard dinner with mary putting oil on his feet is on saturday so From the perspective of that dinner, when Mary is doing what she's doing, it was just the day before when Jesus said to his disciples, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified as we go in for the Passover. So they both heard what Jesus had said. Mary, not even as often because she wasn't typically traveling everywhere with Jesus like the disciples were, but she heard it, she grasped it, And they both heard what Jesus said. Now Mary, she heard him and believed him and came to truly understand. She knew him. This is the Messiah. He's the Savior. The disciples heard him, but they didn't fully understand that or get it. Yet they were positive toward Jesus and loved him and followed him and listened to him, but they didn't always get it, but she did. Why? Why the disconnect for them, the disciples. Well, what Jesus said was often not what they expected. They knew that he was the Messiah and they had expectations. Some of that was scriptural of the conquering king, uh, but there's Messiah and this idea of their natural thinking here of what a Messiah and the king was going to be is not going to suffer and die and be crucified. So all of them probably like Peter were in their mind going, no, no, no. And they would mix their natural reasonable human expectation and thinking with these divine supernatural words of god because they believe the words but they mix them and they adjust them so it somehow was more palatable you know before a person gets saved and becomes a christian we do the same we mix some works into the grace mix we hear of jesus loved us and died for us and, and was raised again and we just have to believe on him and that sounds awesome just to put our trust in him and what he did for us. But obviously there has to be a little bit more than that. And so we add some religious twist. You have to say this prayer or maybe come forward or somehow demonstrate or do something by way of works. And yet Ephesians reminds us salvation is not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so we mix in some responsibility and performance into the Christian life by grace as well. Once we get saved, we tend to do the same thing in the Christian life as we live the Christian life by grace. We say in our thinking, yes, it is by grace, but we need to be sincere and we need to be consistent and let's be trying hard and we're no coasting and let's keep short accounts. But the Word of God says something quite clearly. Someone like Mary camps on it. But others, it rubs against our natural way of seeing things or our preconceived notions, so we very politely will adjust it. So as we apply that to you and I today, the Word of God says, for example, that God loves you unconditionally, that he is for you, he is with you, he accepts you as you are, and will never leave you. And the point of our life now is to walk in this love and to come to know him and abide in his love. It's not about doing, but abiding. In fact, Jesus said, without him and this abiding, we can do nothing. And abiding is just this enjoyment of relationship by faith, resting in all that he is and what he said and what he's doing. Without him, we can do nothing. So this is a bit uncomfortable. (sighs) I mean, it's just too much just abiding and doesn't account for any human hustle or showing ourselves worthy, our productivity. So we, we tend to weave in these some of these human things and some responsibility and what we need to do. And we need to self-reflect, in fact, a lot. And don't let God be disappointed and be productive. And there, ah, that feels more comfortable. See, without him, I, I can only do a little. Everything is so much better with him, is what we then adjust in here. You know, if you turn to Romans 8, verse 31, look at that string of amazing things that God says, things that we're not expecting in our natural mind and we still struggle with even as Christians. In Romans 8, 31, Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? These are rhetorical questions. The answer is no one. But then we kind of talk to ourselves and say, well, except maybe ourselves, you know, if I get hard-hearted or if I just get carnal too long and I'm not really pleasing to him, then God isn't for me as much, right? Yeah, that sounds good. That makes very natural sense. Romans eight thirty-two. we go on. He who did not spare his son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Ah yes, of course. He will freely, freely, freely give us all things. But I can't resist the urge to qualify. Add a condition or two here. You know, if I want a certain thing, do this, and then he will be prompted to do that. That's freely, right? Yep, that makes sense to me. Don't 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 dig too deep on that. And then we've adjusted it. And Romans eight thirty three who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Well, no one will bring a charge against God's elect, the rhetorical question, but I can hang on to things. I can hang on. I know what I've done, and I know I'm having a hard time letting it go, and I'm having this issue of guilt and so forth, so I'm kind of hanging on, and I've got this charge, and so I just it's still hanging in the air. Romans 8.34, Who is he who condemns? Rhetorical question. Nobody. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God. And he also makes intercession for us. Who condemns? Ah, no one, but I kind of can. I have a lot of negative talk. I go through it. What a, how I'm just so thick and I don't get it. Why do I keep failing in this way? I never seem to get beyond it. And other people are doing better. And I should be beyond this by now. And I'm not being very productive. And I don't know if I'll get rewards. And I don't know. And so others are perf- you know, performing well. And I don't seem to be. And I, I, so I just have this issue of I'm self-condemning. And even though it says who can condemn, I seem to be very realistically able to do that. And, uh, and so that just lingers in the air as well. Romans 8:35 Who shall separate us from the love of God excuse me from the love of Christ Who shall separate you from the love of Christ yeah, I know nothing, but I know I don't always enjoy it, and I can qualify this by needing fellowship. And in order to have fellowship, I first need to do certain things and be in a and so forth. And 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 so I know that I will never be separated from his love in this kind of cold fact over here, but the vibrancy and vitality of that relationship and stuff is qualified. And it seems like I'm separated, and we get to verse thirty-nine. Who shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's convinced nothing will separate us from the love of God. So you see verse 35, nothing can separate us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? <laughs> and here, what will be able to separate us from the love of God? They're both there, just like John fifteen nine talks about. And so... We are in Christ where the love of God is. We are loved by God unconditionally, positively, always. There's nothing conditional at all in any of these statements in Romans 8:31 through 39. It's not conditional. It's positional. It's ultimate. It's awesome. It's to be just absolutely stood upon like Mary and just simply believed and enjoyed. But by adding qualifications or those subtle little maybes, this and that, a little condition here, a little negative self-talk that might show how I'm reflecting my humility and trying hard and somehow that makes us feel more comfortable. And yet it causes us to be more like the disciples and missing the intensity or the, the truth that's laid out there that Mary just lays hold of and she gets him. So what makes us comfortable just is temporary because it's, it's causing us to not fully connect with the amazing truths that God's showing us. Boy, it's easy to do. I know we all do it. To hear something plainly and then run it through our human grid and adjust it just a little bit for some comfort level. But Mary didn't do that. Thus, she connected with him deeply, worshiped him and ministered to him. And they connected. She got him. And there's an intensity of relationship there that's awesome to see. And it's hopefully all of us are saying, yeah, I boy, I would love to be more in that place. There's really then as we finish off the here, there's two kinds of Christians. There are those who believe Jesus totally loves them as they are. He says, I know everything about you. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every failure that you've struggled with. I know every secret you're hiding. I know your thought life, your feeble prayer life. I know your lack of devotion. I know your hypocrisy. And I love you totally, unconditionally, right now and forever. You are mine and I am for you. I will freely give you all things and nothing can separate you from my love. So like Mary, there are those who hear this and believe that and are convinced and camp on it. He loves me. And joy ensues. Worship and personal relationship flow out of this. Or two kinds of Christians. The other are like the disciples who might hear all the same and believe it, of course. Yes, sort of. But choose to mix in some natural human reasoning, a few drops of merit or whatever it is, Be consistent or you can't expect god to love you if you're going to do this or be like that or have this kind of track record and not be getting over things yeah and, and so god is then just a tad distant authoritative and never quite pleased feels good at first but then that's the result it is easier to camp on the fact that god wants to use me for something to be productive, rather than on the fact that he just loves me, period. You can't do anything without Jesus anyway. He says, without me, you can do nothing. He wants our hearts, and then everything else will flow out of that. The love of God is the greatest force in the universe, and sin wilts before it. So don't qualify it. Don't adjust it. Otherwise, we become travel agents with beautiful brochures about places that we have not been. So Mary or the disciples, which are you? The better question is, which do you want to be? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace again. And we thank you for your patience with us, for all of your children, your unending love for all of us coming at us 24 seven. Thanks for the open door that we all have to get to know you better, to be absorbed into you, to walk with you and to grow in the grace and the knowledge of you. May we taste and see that you are good. And may we all be growing into more intensity in our awareness of and love for you. Teach us to hear and believe and not to adjust what you say. Teach us to tune out also, Lord, the critics when we are walking in unison with you and enjoying you. And we thank you for this amazing fellowship and even looking forward to eternity with you. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. a reminder we do have interactive questions for this podcast just email email us at coolhandgrace at gmail.com and feel free to send us feedback as well if this podcast has been encouraging to you or helping or any other comments we'd love to hear from you again at coolhandgrace at gmail.com until next time remember where the spirit of god is there is always hope